You are listening to the Stand with Dignity podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. everyone, and thank you for joining uh, Muslims for Peace today for our event titled Imam Hussein, I'm a beacon of justice for black lives. Um, I'm sure anyone watching this has not been uh, uh, uninformed about the Black Lives, the sort of rejuvenation of the Black Lives Matter movement that uh, we have seen over the past few months, beginning with the um, with the murder of George Floyd. I'm sorry, also, I misspoke. This is a Stand With Dignity event. Um, I, I said Muslims for Peace. Um, again, I'm sure no one watching this event has been uh, uninformed about the recent protests uh, that have overtaken the country um, and actually that have gone abroad transnationally after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, may Allah have mercy on him and all those who have been killed unjustly at the hands of various oppressors state oppressors and otherwise. And today uh, we want to do more than just voice our um, our solidarity and of course our um, desire to see an end of police brutality and systemic racism in the U.S., but we want to sort of explore the Black Lives Matter movement through the paradigm of Husseinian justice. So we don't just want to say um, we want to sort of move beyond just saying that um, Islam is anti-racism and Islam, as Muslims, we stand for social justice. And as Muslims, we stand against oppressors um, always. But we sort of want to explore what we can learn from the example of Imam Hussein and his uh, stance uh, for justice and what the similarities are, what the universal themes are that carry over into this uh, reiteration of a struggle between oppressor and oppressed, um, oppressor and marginalized, and what things are unique to our era and what that means for our responsibilities um, as uh, participants, not only in the Muslim community, but in America in the West where we live in our side and what that means for what we should be doing uh, in this moment. So I want to take up as little space as possible, inshallah, during this session. I'm here just um, to moderate the event, inshallah, and I want to pass it over now to our first speaker, Sheikh Hussein al-Mekki. He's an African-American Shiite scholar originally from Philadelphia, whose parents converted to Islam after the Islamic Revolution. He studied in the Hausa in the Islamic Seminary in Qom for about 10 years and is currently a PhD student at the University of Denver. So um, he has experience working with multiple centers, uh, Islamic schools, nonprofits, and is the executive director of the Ahlul Bayt Assembly of America. So without further ado, I'm going to pass it over to Sheikh Hussein um, for his contributions, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of Allah, the Beneficent, the Merciful, wa sallallahu ala Muhammad wa alim Muhammad. 
Peace and salutations and blessings be upon the Holy Prophet Muhammad and his progeny. Assalamu alaikum to everyone. Um, greetings and peace. Um, <clears throat> eight minutes and 46, sec 46 seconds changed a lot of people's lives. Their perception, it changed the way they saw things. It caused some realizations. Um, but, you know, I have to take a step back and really put that into some context because for a lot of people, this was a rude awakening of a reality that many people like myself see and experience far too often. I've had my face slammed to the ground. I've had cops pull uh, uh, guns on me. I've been pulled over uh, too many times, more than I can remember, for no important reason. I understand what systematic racism looks like, that racism actually, by definition, is systematic. I understand that every time that I walk out of the door, out of my home, that anything, any of the things that the stories that you've heard about, things that have happened to other people could be something that happens to me. I understand that even if you're laying in your home, sleeping, minding your business, something can happen to you. So for a lot of people, it was good that there was such an awakening. But there also needs to be a realization that there were other people that were living a nightmare, not awakening to one, or realizing that this is a situation that's just happened. I like what LeBron James said. He, he was talking about this same sentiment of that this is not a, a, a movement, like a moment in time, but a lifestyle that, especially in this country, when you wake up as a person of color, as an African-American, especially as a black male, you're susceptible to becoming a statistic at any given time. And that's a reality that you have to come to terms with. That's a burden that you have to bear, that you walk out of the house with every single day. And so for other people to come to this realization, it is good. Even if it's late, it's still good. It's late to the party, better than not making it to the party at all. We're living in a really particular era right now. You know, um, social justice is, you know, in a digital age in where uh, they used to call it the information age, and, and now it's more like the information overload age. You used to get one email and you were happy, and now you get, uh, uh, so much messages that you get spam and this and that and more messages than you want to. You're muting your messages and trying to find ways to consolidate so many things. We're living in this age where all of these things are by, by virtue of that are being made more available. So more than ever before, what's happening is that these cameras and smartphones are catching things which were already happening all of the time, you know. But now you, we get access to it. We get to see it. The rosy, th the rosy 
uh, uh, American dream that some people would like to, uh, that imaginary fairy tale world they would like to live in, that's being shattered because of the realities that they're being forced to witness. And that's a good thing. We're also living in this era with social distancing and COVID and a whole nother layer to how we navigate and what strategies and approaches we can use. When we want to communicate or get together. And it takes me to words of Imam Hassan al-Mujtaba. Peace be upon him. The brother of Imam Hussein, the second Imam, who said that a person who really understands that God wants good for him wouldn't want to be in any other situation than the one that God put him in. It means that a person who understands that at the end of the day, people make mistakes and do wrong. Not even make mistakes, people transgress. But God is always going to be on the side of good and help. And if I understand that and I have that reliance on God, then I'm able to look at a difficult situation and try to see how or what I can learn from it, what's positive about it. There was no, who would think that even the, the battle of Karbala, this event, would be something that was, it was so a, a, a massacre. It was so tragic. But it will be something that touched the hearts of people throughout the world. In unprecedented fashion. The, there's there's a, a, one of the teachers of George Floyd, she had saved the picture of something he drew when he was in second grade, I believe, or he wanted to be a uh, a judge. He had such an aspiration. It probably, I would say, didn't cross his mind that his life would end up being taken that way. With a knee on his neck saying, I can't breathe. To the point where that became such a uh, uh, a, uh, a magnified point for people to focus on causing them to be connected and feel a sense of humanity. People who are more and more indifferent are now changing their tune a little bit. So taking all of these all of this climate into consideration. We have what we have now. Nobody's a fan of, you know, COVID and all of these things that are happening. But when looking at the circumstance, what can we do with that now? How can that become a source and a catalyst for ourselves and for uh, uh, further movements, for change, for the betterment of the world, for the betterment of society? Even social distancing, we could say that this program, which has brought all of us together here by virtue of being distant from one another, in a way we can use the look at the glass half full and become closer to one another. 
What are the what are the ways that we can see the positive? What are the ways that we can capitalize off of that? That becomes an important strategy. The the current social climate and how do we take from that? It's tragic what happened. What's continued to happen? It's tragic the system that exists that allows this to happen, but how do we capitalize off of that? And we have to understand justice. Imam Ali, peace be upon him, says that this is the foundation which the entire universe is built upon and balanced upon. You remove that, of course you're going to have oppression and chaos. And I, I just want to uh, re, uh, just point out that when we say justice and when we say oppression, from an Islamic standpoint, you know, um, I know that there is a sentiment, and it's coming from the right place. We're, we're tired of hearing the slogans where Muslims are talking about how Islam is the solution. In, in theory, Islam is the solution, and Islam, we're, Muslim social justice is a part of Islam. But we're not seeing the results. So we have to put those things in the perspective. First and foremost, that is absolutely true. Islam as a system is a solution to the problems of society and humanity. The verses of the Quran, which are a continuation of a path of guidance for humanity uh, uh, from Adam to Muhammad, peace be upon them. This is that, that uh, guidance which maintains that balance of justice in society, in the world. What's the problem? The problem are the people who are not understanding justice, who are not practicing justice. The people who don't, who are not realizing that they, especially those who consider themselves Muslims, have to be practitioners of Islam. Not just people shouting verbal slogans for practitioners. Unfortunately, when Islam and Muslim are not synonymous, then you find that Muslims do injustice to themselves, to their other Muslim brothers within their mosques and centers, and they are no different than any person. The thing that separates is following that, that true idea of what justice is, putting everything exactly the way it should be, this is justice. Not just doing things that I think I want to do, not following my ego, not doing, not ignoring problems in society because I'm benefiting from a system of racism. No. Really following that idea and that concept of what equity and justice is means that first and foremost, I have to be just to myself. I have to be just to my family. I have to be just to everyone who's around me. And we cannot get duped into unfollowing definitions, which are not true definitions of justice. Right now, there's somebody who's a white supremacist who's saying that it's an oppression that uh, uh, if, if they 
or uh, if they're not allowed to burn a cross somewhere, that that's an oppression to their beliefs. Obviously, from an Islamic standpoint of justice, I don't care about that. I don't care about what you want to do when it's a disrespect to the world and society. Justice as God has defined justice. Not as people have defined or, or misdefined. You might have people that want to rock around in a nudist colony and they'll say that anybody who doesn't let us is, this is they've done an injustice to us. We want to follow justice as God has defined. Oppression as God has defined. Because the lines have gotten so murky when it came to human beings trying to define things. It's the problem with a, 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 a man's law versus God's law. When there were laws which were supposed to uphold justice in this country, which belittled black people to, and, and, and to a, a such an extent that they were not even barely considered human beings. With no rights. That's not an Islamic definition. Let's go to Karbala. And I really want to focus on one particular point in Karbala. This incredibly important event, which we focus on a particular part of the year, but I really believe the slogan of every day is Karbala also uh, uh, means that we should focus on it and make it a part of our life every day. I remember once I was speaking at a university and uh, it was an installment of their new president. And they asked everyone to bring something, a small gift or something like that. And it was interfaith. So there was, you know, Buddhists, um, Catholic, different people of different ba backgrounds, rabbi, different faith leaders. And I, and I bought a uh, plaque of the Zari, of the shrine of Imam Hussein, peace be upon him, of that image. And I was explaining to, you know, all of the people who were present there that this, what you're looking at, is the most visited place on the planet Earth. And people come from all over the world to visit this person who stood, was a, a symbol of social justice himself, a symbol of sacrifice. I had so many people want to ask and find out, who is this person and where is this place? In Karbala, Imam Hussein was, as we know, very much outnumbered. He was calling out, who's going to answer the call? Halman Nasirin Yansurin. He was calling out to the people. Who will help me? When we read the uh, uh, prayer and ziyarat, of Imam Hussein in Karbala, on Ashura, on that tragic 10th day 
of the month of Muharram, it says, it talks about a group being cursed, and that group are the people who murdered him. It talks about another group. Who are they? They're not the they're not the people who unsheathed their swords, who charged in battle. They're not those people. They are the bystanders. They are the people who heard but did nothing. They were quiet. You know, we, we, we say they stuck their head in the sand, right? It's that something going on. My name's Bennett and I ain't in it. I stick my head in the sand. I didn't see nothing. I don't know what's going on. Everybody's, or somebody's right, somebody's wrong. I don't know what happened. And by doing that, they enabled the murder. They were enablers of injustice. So this is the question for people everywhere in the world. When we hear about a George Floyd incident, when we hear about Trayvon Martin, uh, when we hear about Michael Brown, when we hear about a Philando Castillo, when we hear about all of these names and tragedies that have taken place, do we stick our head in the sand? Do we find a way to tune it out? Does it become a conversation and then we, we, we're, we're past it the next day? Are we so comfortable in our life? We don't want that to get shaken up with talking about these things. If that's the case, then we are the that second group, which is also cursed. It says they're cursed because they enabled. They did nothing. I have two more points to make. One, the the uh, fourth point is that Malcolm X, Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz, may Allah have mercy on his soul, Shaheed Malcolm, a martyr, a champion, Somebody who should remind us all that we should be constantly in a state of evolution. You know, where this Hajj season should be a reminder to us. When we think about the Hajj of Malcolm X, how in his letter he talks about I I want to about learning, about continuing his education, about witnessing practitioners of Islam, not Islam as a slogan, but practitioners of Islam, true people. Muslim is one who submits, who have submitted to Allah. And despite their race, so people who are white, who would be considered white in America with, the, with uh, blonde hair and blue eyes, eating from the same place, sleeping on the same rugs. But this notion how Islam is in and it of itself an apparatus to remove the sickness of racism. He said that Islam is the cure for this malignant cancer in America. What's the problem? The problem is Muslims are not practicing Islam. <laughs> when it comes down to it, we go to the, we treat Islam like it's a buffet. We pick and choose what we like. Oh, social justice, I'm going to have just a little bit of that. I don't want to have too much of that. That might mess with my green card status. That might mess with this situation. No. It's this, all of us together. Imam Hussein is the example of that. He didn't say, I love everything about Islam, but I don't like martyrdom. I don't like sacrifice. No. He showed us that a Muslim is one who submits, who is a practitioner of Islam, who puts it all on the table and all on the line. 
the last thing that I'd like you to take from this talk, which I assume I've already gone over my time, because that's what people who are scholars do, are sheikhs and imams. We have this tendency. Please forgive us. I want you to think about how when people see problems in the world, they usually think about how the world, what should happen in the world. And they say things like, they need to do this. They need to do that. They need to mobilize. Or sometimes it's, we need to do that. The only problem with this is the they's and we's require that I and the I's have an important role in that, and that we as individuals are doing things. The problems in the world, the problems in America, the, the system which exists, which is a corrupt system which enables injustice, doesn't just get fixed overnight. It's a process. It's an, it's an ocean of, diff, of problems. You throw a pebble in the ocean. Now, throwing a pebble in an ocean sounds like you're not doing anything. But when you think about how there's a ripple effect, those waves, that ripple effect that keeps going and going, imagine if everybody's throwing a pebble in the ocean, then you have all of these concurrent ripples and waves that are changing the surface of the water. What this means is that as an individual, I have to be re re willing, ready to do my part. I have to be the one to say that I'm going to fix if my lack of understanding of social just injustices, for example. I'm going to change from just, oh, I know something about racism and I have a black friend to I know how to be an anti-racist and I understand what this system is doing and I understand that I can play a role by first making myself knowledgeable, then holding those around me accountable, having conversations with my parents, having conversations with my aunties, my uncles, people in my circle, not allowing racism to exist in my circle, my family, and so on and so forth, and my masjid, being proactive in my uh, uh, religious center, in my groups, in my organizations, and then we'll see how that pebble makes a huge difference uh, for all of us, inshallah. May Allah, inshallah, give us all more success to see the straight path and to walk the straight path, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much for that, uh, Sheikh. And just... Uh, to be, revisit your last point, I think that's a really sort of crucial point um, in the struggle for social justice or a better, more equitable, more um, just society in Allah's vision is that we have to be okay with uh, knowing that we might not be around. We most likely will not be around to see the final results and that, um, you know, it didn't take a day to get here and it's not going to take a day to um to reverse all the damage that's been done. 
And it really requires sort of a heavy dose of modesty and humbleness to realize that you're just a very tiny, tiny, minuscule part of the equation. And, you know, um, if figures like Imam Hussein, Aisam, and our Prophet them weren't able to bring ultimate justice to the world and sort of finish the job, then we certainly um, are not going to be able to. But that doesn't uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be striving to our utmost. Um, I next want to introduce uh, our dear brother Imam Dawood Walid. We're very uh, fortunate to have him with us as well today. Imam Dawood Walid is currently the executive director of the Michigan chapter of CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations. And he's also a senior fellow at Auburn Seminary in New York. He has studied under many scholars, uh, studied Arabic grammar and morphology, fiqh, uh, sciences of Quranic tafsir, and he has served as an imam at Masjid Wali Muhammad in Detroit and the Bosnian American Islamic Center in Hamtramck, Michigan. Um, I'm also from Michigan, imam. I'm uh, very excited to have a fellow Michigander on on board today. Uh, he's the author of the book Towards Sacred Activism, co-author of the book Centering Black Narrative, Black Muslim Nobles Among Early Pious Muslims, and Centering Black Narrative, Ahlul Bayt, Blackness, and Africa, and the author of essays in the 2012 book All American, 45 American Men on Being Muslim, as well as the 2014 book Quran in Conversation. Without further ado, um, I would like to pass it over to Imam Walid. Uh, thank you. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه وأفضل صلاة وتم تسليم على سيدنا محمد المختار وعلى آله الأدهار وصحبه الأبرار من المهاجرين وأنصار وبعض. First of all, let me say it's a uh, privilege and an honor to be on this platform along with uh, Sheikh uh, Hussein, may Allah preserve him, as well as uh, Maulana Bed, may Allah preserve him, who uh, who will be speaking uh, after me, ta'ala. And um, also, um, thank you to this, uh, this platform for having this uh, continuing conversation that I think that we need uh, to have uh, and not just simply days or a couple of weeks uh, once there is a, a very high profile uh, case that takes place in the media, but this is an ongoing conversation because this is a an ongoing issue that is uh, as old as the United States of America itself. In fact, older than actually uh, the year 1776 in the Declaration of uh, so-called Declaration of Independence. Uh, so uh, I will try to keep my uh, my comments brief. There's a few points that I'd like to make. <clears throat> and of those, the first is uh, in regards to uh, Imam Hussein, and the issue of uh, justice for black lives. Um, I would just caution us that um, even going into the month of Muharram, as we think about this issue, that we should avoid uh, presentism uh, 
as well as reductionism. So by by, uh, presentism, it means that we look at what happened, let's say, 1,300 years ago, and then we try to impose uh, our understanding of how things take place now or how things took place back then and try to completely transpose that on today. So, for instance, uh, the issue of how Arabs understood black people uh, in the uh, lifetime of the Prophet, وسلم, on the time of Imam Hussein, um, and that second generation of Muslims is actually quite different from the uh, modern construct of blackness as is understood in the United States of America or in the West in general, right? So uh, we can't look at that history and necessarily say um, how uh, Arabs understood uh, blackness 14 centuries ago uh, and then uh, look at that history and then try to basically transpose certain things. So I think we need to be careful about that. And then also uh, reductionism, right? And this is um, the issue of trying to reduce the issue of of this particular issue by making a statement such as, well, you know, the imam had a black uh, sahabi, uh, John Mola uh, Abizar al-Ghafari, so then therefore uh, trying to simplify the whole discussion about the movement for black lives to say, well, see, you know, Imam Hussein had this one martyr that he cried over at Karbala and then tried to reduce the, the issue of what's going on right now because Imam Hussein had uh, one uh, African uh, companion who was martyred at Karbala. And then we know that there was also Lady Fidla, as is narrated, also was uh, with that group who were, who were uh, bound and, and carried, um, who were drug um, uh, walking from uh, from Karbala all the way to uh, Damascus in the in the Umuwi court. So I would just uh, try to caution us about oversimplifying things and uh, pre- uh, presentism and, and reductionism, uh, those two things we should be careful about. And even in general, when we uh, read things about is- Islamic history and try to maybe do sloppy transposing of those things today. Uh, but in saying that, <clears throat> uh, Imam Hussein and, and Karbala um from from my perspective of this discussion that uh we look at him as um an archetype and an inheritor of the ways of the prophets that came before so uh we know of course that in one sense that the awliya of Allah azawajal they mirror certain attributes of the NBR, the prophets that came before. So we know that one of the man- manifestations of the sainthood of Imam Hussein is that he, uh, in his uh, shahada, his martyrdom, is like a mirror of the shahada of Nabi Yahya, salam, to the point of even his his blessed uh, ras or head being taken to the same location in which Nabi Yahya, salam, was uh, decapitated by the, the wrongdoers of his time. But Imam Hussein also uh, inherited and displayed uh, something uh, that is uh, Musawi, or we can say 
the 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 spirit of Nabi Musa alayhi salatu salam. And to look at this, um, that history and what's going on today, or the symbolism between Musa and Imam Hussein and what's taking place now, is that the issues that black people face in America uh, today and historically is not just simply uh, individual racists here or there or even racism being confined into something just merely as policing, for instance, or um, courtrooms or the criminal injustice system. We're talking about a society that is structured upon oppression, which then that oppression stems out into basically every avenue of the society from its very beginning. So we look at um, Fir'aun, for example, uh, and, and we know what Allah Azza wa Jal mentioned about Fir'aun. He's the one that spread mischief and corruption across the earth in which he governed, right? And, and of that corruption that he did was he took a group of people and he systematically marginalized them, the Bani Israel, and he enslaved them for a period of about 400 years, four centuries, which mirrors the, the time of African Americans here in the United States of America of over 300 years of chattel enslavement and then another 100 years of overt institutional racism in public policy and not just Jim Crow laws in the North, but also racist policies overtly, I mean, excuse, not only Jim Crow policies in the South, but overt racist policies in the North in which those structures that America was solidified on for those 400 years still have deep-seated consequences in all facets of life, from economic, from access to health care, access to clean water, not in, in Flint, Michigan, even in Detroit, with, uh, where we still have areas of, of, of poison water in the city of Detroit, water turned offs, and, and, and these types of things of just the very uh, basic human right of even having the, the, the right of even having clean water, where people of certain skin color that live in certain zip code can't get clean water in comparison to other folks who live in other zip codes, right? Uh, none of this, none of these things are by accident. This is very Fir'aunic, and Fir'aun represents state power, right? State power. And Fir'aun had policies to keep his uh, hegemony and to maintain uh, the status quo. And similarly, yeah. Yazid, who was state power, recommend, uh, uh, symbolizes so much zoom and oppression beyond him uh, having been a drunkard or what we would call in the black community back then uh, a wino, because, you know, Yazid was a wino. He, he got drunk and drank khamar, right? But of the other things that he did that were uh, uh, atrocious, and even some of the um, for those of you who are not aware, that even some of the uh, the Sunni scholars, such as uh, Ibn Hajar al-Haytami, as well as uh, Sheikh Ahmed Tijani al-Maliki, uh, they actually place some blame on Yazid in regards to 
him being a part of that conspiracy to poison uh, Imam al-Hassan sallallahu alayhi wa So, but he represents state power uh, as well. So, when we look at the khuruj of Musa alayhi salam, and then we look at the khuruj of Imam Hussein sallallahu alayhi uh, we're talking about men, noble people, one a prophet and one a wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who were willing to speak truth to power and were not willing to put their hand and swear their allegiance, not just to an unjust ruler, but also an unjust ruler who was over a government that had systemic and, and, and systemic problems and also was systematic in nature of how they sought to uh, oppress and marginalize certain groups of people so that people who they favor would get uh, more access to certain things in society, right? So this is sort of the framing that I, I hope we can look at this issue. One of these issues that, um, and I want to point this out relating to Fir'aun, and there is a, uh, a, there's a Yazidi component to this as well. Because really, uh, as we say, the Anbiya of Allah have mirrors in the Awliya of Allah that we also have these other sorts of archetypes that are mirrors of each other, and Yazid is just a mirror of Fir'aun. Right? So Allah mentioned in the Quran, يُقَتِّلُونَ أَبَنَاءَكُمْ وَيَسْتَحْيُونَ نِسَاءَكُمْ it is very important. Fir'aun and what his people did, this is mentioned more than one time in the Quran. He said, murder, unjustly kill. It could even be translated as slaughter the young males, but keep alive or spare their women folk. Right? So and this was state policy of Fir'aun. Kill the kill the young males, spare the women folk. Go further into history, Karbala, the sons of Beni Hashem were killed. They were slaughtered. Sayyidatuna Zainab, her life was spared. Sayyidatuna Fatima bin al-Hussein, her life was spared. Lady Fida, her life was spared. But then we look at the others, including the young uh, males and the, and, and the children, uh, of, of, of Benny Hashem who were slaughtered. In the United States of America, there has been issues of black women being unjustly killed. Breonna Taylor is one of those in which her murderers still have not been arrested. And there's been others. Uh, the, uh, how Sandra Bland was, uh, Sandra Bland was unjustly killed. But when you look at it historically in the United States of America, Going back to the days of Reconstruction and organized policing in America until today, you will see overwhelmingly the people who have been unjustly killed by state-sponsored violence and unarmed uh, people are black males, right? And, and, and this is um, uh, a way of not only... Um, Keeping trying to keep the people weak, but is a means of actually terrorizing uh, the, the community because 
a community can't stand up on its own two legs towards self-determination only with its women folk. It needs the males to be involved in helping to lead away along with the women folk. It just can't be the, the, the strong women folk. You have to also have men that are, that are involved. So kill the young men. And of course, uh, black males have always been perceived and painted in the American society as, uh, as uh, more violent or the most violent people in, in the American uh, society. And just like Sheikh Hussein, Hafidahullah, uh, I've also been uh, abused by, by law enforcement uh, myself. And my father has been abused by law enforcement. And I know, um, I know three people personally who've been killed by law enforcement uh, who are African-American males, actually, and two of them Muslims that I've known personally that have been killed by uh, law enforcement here in, in the state of Michigan. Right. So we, we know we know this reality and we know uh, how law enforcement even specifically targets black men. Right. And this is this is nothing but a a a Fir'aunic Yazidi type of 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 mindset to uh, dehumanize and to keep black folks marginalized and this is actually by no accident if if it were just individual acts of 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 accidents or happenstance then it wouldn't be the rule there would be anomalies here or there it wouldn't be regular regular occurrences that have taken place for decades upon decades upon decades upon decades and the only difference between back in the day with today is these these phones is the only difference where people in recent years have just started to believe us black folks what we've been saying all along you know when we were accused of exaggerating the problem or exaggerating the issue the last thing that i like to say is is this and uh the the stance of uh imam hussein uh, or even let's go back to musa salam. Musa salam, as we know, grew up uh, in the in in Egypt, and he grew up in the house of Fir'aun, right? Um, and if he could have kept going on his business as usual, if he didn't stand up for his people, and he could have lived a very comfortable life, Allah knows best. Similarly, when uh, the representative of Bani Umayyah came to Imam Hussein after Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan passed away and asked for uh, his bay'ah or his uh, pledge of allegiance along with Abdullah ibn Umar as well as Abdullah ibn Zubair. Uh, and this, they all weren't approached together. They were approached separately. Um, you know, um, obviously we know that the Umuis had a lot of hatred for uh, an animosity towards uh, Benny Hashem. But let's say, and of course we know this is beneath his maqam or his station, but, you know, he, if, it, it, would, it would have been outside of his character, but for a lesser person, they could have said, well, you know what, I can just go ahead and pledge this allegiance and keep my head down and, you know, and I can live maybe 
a good or safe life. And, you know, maybe even I can get some money out of the deal. And, of course, this is beneath the character of Imam Hussein, right? Now, let's fast forward to 2020. And, uh, and I'm speaking to you who are Muslims who are non-black. See, like, one thing about uh, Sheikh Hussein Mekki or myself, uh, we could take off our thobe or take off our kufi or amama, and if we're walking down the street, uh, even if people don't know our names, they may not know we're Muslim, but they know we're black. See, we can't see people. Muslims can can try to change their name, and they can try to change Zahra to Sally, or 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 Usama to Sam, or sisters can take off their hijab, uh, and may Allah grants refuge from that, or um, you know brothers can try to uh, blend in, uh, you know, and and uh, but you know uh, can't take this off can't take this off in America, right? So we're black, right? So I'm saying this to you with all due respect to those of you who are not black, who are, uh, who are watching this, who, who are Muslims. And that is, is, as we're talking about this issue, you all have a decision you have to make. And going back to what I said before, Musa just wasn't going to be comfortable with Fir'aun so he could live a good life. A good, uh, uh, when I say by good life, I mean a good material life just to be safe and to be able to be comfortable. Uh, Imam Hussein, uh, he didn't do that. You know, his goal wasn't middle class respectability. You know, his goal just wasn't to live a uh, comfortable so-called middle or upper class life, you know, uh, just, to, just to be quiet, just to see these injustices so I can keep my head down, so I can live in this particular neighborhood or have this particular job, right? So the choice has to be made, and, and, and I say this with no ghulul or no exaggeration, is that you have to make a decision, right? And the decision is, are you going to just sit back and want to live the life of the so-called American dream and don't want to rock the boat? Or are you going to stand for the Beni Israel of this country, of the United States of America, right? And uh, there, there is no middle ground, right? Uh, and, I, and I know some people, you know, they, they, I hear Muslims romanticize certain things. They say, oh, well, you know, if I were with the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I would have been one of those 313 companions at Badr. You know, I would have been with, with Hamza, with Mullah Ja'ali. I would have been with Bilal. Or some people say, well, you know, if I were alive at the time of Imam Hussein, I would have been with those 72 shuhada at Karbala. You know, people uh, sometimes, uh, you know, like to exaggerate or romanticize things. But I would say, how can how could you honestly say you would have been with the prophet at Badr or the or, or the uh, or uh, with the imam at Karbala when you're seeking middle class respectability with the Fir'aun or the Yazid of this land? I don't think that's possible, 
right? So there's some decisions that have to be made, and there has to be some 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 re some re uh, readjustment, right? And uh, your own material comfortability. See, uh, just being a mukmin, uh, being a believer, a striver in Islam. There's nothing that says that being a believer in Islam guarantees uh, middle class respectability, where everyone likes you, where you can live in a white house and a white picket fence next to uh, people in the dominant culture, right? Uh, there, there, there's la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. When we signed up for that, that, that's no guarantee. And it's not saying that um, we look to be offensive, but as as the late as it was uh, the late John Lewis said that um, we shouldn't be comfortable with injustice. We should look for good trouble, right? So that's the decision that we have to make. Are we just going to sit back and be comfortable uh, living in this uh, country established upon the false ideology of white supremacy, or just we just want to be uh, comfortable with 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 Fir'aun and be comfortable with Yazid while we see all of these gross systemic injustices that keep on going and going and going and going. And with that, sorry, I, I thought that I was going to stop within 12 minutes, but I went a little bit over. Uh, and Sheikh Hussein, what he said is true, that uh, one who's a Sheikh or a Daria, sometimes when we get when we start to speak, we can go over. So, Wafwan Minkum, please pardon me. Jazakallah khair, Imam Dawood. Thank you so much for that. I really think it's so crucial for us to take a good, hard look at ourselves. And, you know, when we're even thinking about the end of times and thinking about are we going to be on the side of the Dajjal or are we going to be on the side of the Mahdi? And Imam Isa, Nabi Isa, like we, we sort of automatically assume that because we're believers, we have a ticket into that group. We have a ticket into the good group. Um, but it really takes sort of consistent refinement of ourselves, refinement of what we're doing, what we're spending our time and energy doing. And uh, if we're not doing it now, when the injustice is clear, um, what what makes us believe we're going to be doing it then? Or what makes us believe we would have done it had we been alive 1,400 years ago? Um, so Jazakallah khair for that. Um, next, I want to uh, pass it over to Maulana uh, Mirza Muhammad Ali Bayk who studied at the Hausa Almiya in uh, New York, where he studied basic Islamic sciences, and then moved on to the Hausa Almiya in Qom, where he studied in the Imam Jawad school, and then the Madrasa Ibama of Imam Khomeini. He completed his studies in 2000 and specialized in Quranic Tafsir. In Orlando, he was the imam of several masajids before beginning the Imam Ali Seminary uh, in Orlando, Florida, which has produced 24 graduates, many of whom have gone on to uh, study in Najaf or Qom and are leading communities in the U.S. And he is a frequent organizer of Hajj and Ziyarat groups and is currently the resident alam of the Husseiniya Islamic Society of Seattle. Uh, so, Bismillah, please, uh, Mulana Beg, whenever you're ready. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, I'm honored to be here amongst all of you. So um, let us start. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. 
الحمدللہ رب العالمین وصلاۃ وسلام علی اشرف الانبیاء والمرسلین بالقاسم محمد وعلی اله الطیبین الطاهرین المعصومین سیما بقیت الله العظم روحی وارواح العالمین له الفدا دی ایشو اف ریسزم ان ڈسکرمنیشن دیٹ از ان آؤٹکم اف دیٹ ہیز بین ا ہسٹری دیٹ از لانگ اینڈ ہارش ان دی یونائٹڈ اسٹیٹس From the beginning, when America was formed, we see that racism existed. And the idea that blacks were inferior to white people was a foregone part amongst people. It wasn't even debatable. Even the person who wrote down and penned down the preamble saying that all men are created evil believed that black people were inferior in fact he forwarded to science to prove that how black people are inferior to white people and then he concluded that yes black people are inferior to white people in body and mind So this was a foregone idea that you see that the people at that time who created the country and the system of the country made this country to think in certain terms. And from then onwards, it has been going forward. Every era and all the problems that you see and all the issues that happen as an outcome of this systematic problem that existed from the beginning yes it came to the civil war and, and civil war was fought for whatever reason but before that eight us presidents were slave owners and it wasn't a problem it wasn't an issue in the election that oh you own slave you cannot be elected it was just fine and it was okay and people were being crushed at that time under the yoke of oppression that was going on no one actually cared and it was going forward with that now first of all let's define what racism is because one of the issues with the problem in america right now that i view and i see is that racism itself by definition is not understood where it comes from what is the actual background of it how does it come about what does it belong to is it a social problem is it a spiritual problem is it a psychological problem where is this problem coming from it's very important that we understand that because we and people in america understand racism as how you look at other people how do you view others around you but that's not where it comes from racism is not how you view others racism is how you view yourself what do you think about your own self what is your idea about yourself if the idea of yourself is incorrect it is wrong it is warped then your idea of others will be wrong racism starts 
inwards, not outwards. How do I look at myself? How do I view myself? Based on that, you will see how it is. This is what happened when Allah explains this in the Quran by giving the example of shaitan. Look at shaitan's story. You see that shaitan viewed himself in a walkway. That's why he could never understand Adam. He could never understand Adam. Why? Because of the fact that he viewed himself wrong. That's why he said, I am made of fire. He is made of clay. This was the premise. This was the foundation of that discrimination, that racism that he had. And, and that idea that he had that I'm different than he is in that sense. He could not view himself correctly. He didn't think that I am a servant of God. He didn't think that I'm a creation of God just like Adam is. He viewed himself wrongly and that's why you view other people wrongly. Here in America, the problem is we have been trained since childhood to be racist. Every one of us, anyone who has been here, you will see that this racism, and it's different than, than what we experience other places. The racism here is different, but it is instilled in us. It is given to us with every government form that you fill. You fill out that U.S. Census form, and there you are told to classify yourself as white and black. That's how this system is training us to think of ourselves as who we are, what we are. And when we look at ourselves like that, then our worldview also is warped. When we, for example, think that God is white, then yes, anything that's godly has to be white. And everything that's ungodly has to be black or away from white, or however you would call it. So this whole thing was ingrained into us, and now we all are thinking in those terms. We think in those terms, and this goes down inside of us. We have been trained for this, and it goes way down inside of us. And we now look at others this way. Oh, he's black, he's yellow, he's this. You look at the form. And, and when you try to fill the form, there's an option of race. It says white, black, Pacific Islander, Native American. Why am I trying to classify myself like that? And it was so bad that at the end, they said, okay, it's an optional question. You don't have to answer it. But still, why is it still there? If it's bad, why is this question there? Because this is what trains us to be racist. It is inside of us. We need to now stop thinking. It's a sickness that is not outward. It's an inward sickness. It's in our belief system. It's in our belief system. And hence, when it's in our belief system and it's inward, it's in our own psyche and it's in our own state that we have, then you cannot solve that problem by legislation, by creating laws, by making laws. You know, you can stop discrimination by creating laws, but you cannot get rid of racism by making a law. And that's the thing. The 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment were passed 150 years ago, but were 
what are the effects now? It's been 150 years. And still we're having the same problems. Why is that the case that, that we have to go through such a thing? How is it so horrible that this, it's in the law. I mean, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment were ratified for this purpose of creating equality, of bringing people, uh, uh, saying that everyone is the same. But you see that having that law didn't change the mindset of people, didn't change the society, didn't change the problem that exists. Why? Because it has nothing to do with law or social. It's an inward problem in belief. People actually believe that. There are people who believe that, you know, such and such people are inferior. And in their mindset, because they hear from everyone that they're growing up with, and they have been assured that, yes, this idea is right, that they're not the same. So, you know, you just believe in that. It's your belief system. And, and you cannot change a belief system. For example, if you make a law in America that says you cannot worship Jesus and that's the law, how many people are going to quit? You can't change what's in the hearts of people like that. That's not going to happen. Making a law or, uh, you know, I mean, brother, I mean, I don't know, you know, if uh, Sheikh Hussein knows this or, uh, or brother Daoud, I mean, the elder. Black people know this who lived in the 50s and 60s, right? That that when 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 that discrimination was going on in the 60s, you know, the 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 cry for the people who were trying to fight the injustice was, you know, what we need more black police officers. And what happened? Black police officers were even harder and harsher because they were trying to prove to their bosses that they're loyal. And that hurt the people more. You know, I mean, this is a reality. You, you can't change a, a problem that exists in the belief system of the people by creating laws. That's why Allah never created a law banning slavery. It doesn't work like that. It has to be weaned out by an inner revolution. An internal change in the belief system. That's how it's going to be rooted out. It cannot be rooted out by just making us, uh, you know, making a law. Defund the police. You know, that is just one particular small thing that's happening. Uh, a, a, a small symptom of a major disease. And this is why for us, for America to rid itself of that disease, there needs to be an inner revolution in the belief system, in the minds of the people. And this is why Malcolm X, as Sheikh Hussein pointed out earlier, Malcolm X realized that the only solution to the problem of racism in America, racism in America is Islam. A, a spiritual force that can come here, that is colorblind, that can truly bring everyone that's there on board, bring them together.
let that happen. It, it needs that force to come about. And this is the solution that we are offering to the American people. And we need to offer it at this time when people have woken up. George Floyd was not the first black person who was killed in an outrageous way. The list is long. And it's terrible. It is terrible. Look at the list of people that have been killed. And that too, I'm talking about the list that's caught on camera. The ones that are not caught on camera, I mean, that's abundant. Leave all of that behind. I mean, truly this is the case. We, when you look at these, the reason people are waking up to see this right now is not because of George Floyd. George Floyd wouldn't have had any meaning if it wasn't for the fact that Allah has woken up the people by giving them just chance to think and use their intellect. My friends, Allah did not, God did not make us white. He did not make us black. He made us intelligent. And it's intellect that makes us a human being. And it's that which helps us to see what's right from wrong. And to know that the color of my skin doesn't, is not what makes me a human being. In fact, it should not be defining me in any way or form. It should be a lot more than that. And hence, we have been woken up to use our minds. And now people are able to see. They're able to see what's going on. And they saw this and they said, this is a terrible thing. And you're like, yeah, we know it's terrible, but you know, a lot of terrible things have happened in the past. Where were you all? What happened? You just woke up? That's, that's it is. Yes, we just woke up. The quarantine has woken up the conscience and the minds of the people that they're actually able to see things now. So this is the time for anyone who wants to drive across a message and tell the people that where does the real solution lie? The real solution lies in us and that internal revolution of us changing our mindset and our system of belief that has led us to this predicament right now. That is what needs to change. And that is where Imam Hussein comes in, where Islam comes in. And Imam Hussein uh, being the platform where everyone is welcome and bring the umbrella where everyone is the same. This is that place where everyone can come together at one place and look at that. When Malcolm saw the people in Hajj, they say, hey, everyone is together here. When you come under that umbrella of Islam and the umbrella of true Islam that Imam Hussein had, then you come under that true umbrella of us being together. All of us. Not looking at ourselves as black and white or yellow or whatever. Looking at ourselves as a servant of Allah, a creation or a human being. If you don't just believe in God, just a human being. 
correct way, the intelligent way of looking at it ourselves. Why aren't we doing that? Because the system is driving that into us. And we need to now have a force that is outside that comes into us and changes the way that we think and, and, and creates a movement in our heart for that. Every person who follows Imam Hussein and understands the mission of Imam Hussein should know that the most basic message of Imam Hussein, the fundamental message of Imam Hussein before anything else, and Imam Hussein has taught everything that we need to know in Karbala, but the most basic thing that he has taught is that when you see wrong happening, then you have to stand up against it. You gotta stand up against it. How can you not stand up and say that I believe in Imam Hussein? That is the most basic message. If I see someone lying down on the ground, injured and hurt and dying, I can't just ignore him and walk by. That would not be in sync with the faith and the mission of Imam Hussein completely. The most fundamental belief that we have is that we need to stand up again in justice. So now that we see what's happening in our time, in our age where people have woken up, we should have been awoke a long time ago. But it's unfortunate that it took a pandemic to wake us up. You know, we, we should have, as a believer, should have woken up a long time ago and recognized this and known this. And you know what? The brothers who had faced the problem, they faced the problem here in America. But as a Shia, a believer of Ahlul Bayt, this is not something new for us. We have been persecuted and killed and targeted for killing throughout history, even today. How can we not understand the predicament of the black people in America? Of all the people in the world who came to America, we should be the first ones to understand that because we have been through the same road. And we have been through the same thing. This is Husseini justice. What do you mean Husseini justice? Hussein is a platform where everyone is one and the same. We don't look at others. We look at ourselves in the correct way. He has taught us to do that. You know, I'll give an example of Hur. Hur was that commander of Yazid who came over to Hussein's side on the day of Ashura and, and switched sides. And that Hur was a commander, a respectable person. Person who everyone looked up to. Everyone was like, wow, Hur was this amazing person who has become a very huge personality in the Muslim world. And that Hur went here on that day, knew he's going to die. There's no way he's going to live if he's, if he's going to switch sides. He came there, and when he saw the army, when he turned back and he saw the army that he belonged to a few moments ago, when he looked at that army, and he realized that these were the people for whom I was living my life. Everything I've done in my life is for these people. And now they were faceless people who had no meaning. My friends, this is that inner revolution that happens. It changes the way you look at yourself. 
and then it changes the way you look at the world. What America needs right now is that inner revolution. And that is what we need to be giving out to the world right now. Do not waste this time. Do not lose this opportunity. And do not skip this moment because it might never come back again. So we need to give our job and let the world know that, you know what? It is time for that inner revolution in people. And bring them towards Allah and let him change the hearts and minds of the people. And that is going to get rid of the problem that exists. I pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he gives us the tawfiq to carry out his mission and, and to do the things that has to be done in order to be a servant to our master. Thank you so much, everyone. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khair, Maulana Baig. I, um, I think it's definitely, you know, our responsibility first and foremost to align ourselves with the vision of divine justice that Allah has prescribed for us in the Quran and in the example of our prophets and the Ahl Bayt and without reforming ourselves and truly aligning ourselves and submitting ourselves to that divine justice and that divine truth then uh, it's going to be very uh, difficult for us to um, achieve anything inshallah so um, Next, we have, uh, unfortunately, our uh, esteemed scholar, Hajj uh, Hassanan Rajabali, was not able to join us today, but we are going to stream um, a video that he pre-recorded for the event. Um, Hajj Hassanan Rajabali is originally Tanzanian, um, but he is a very uh, prominent and prolific Muslim uh, lecturer. He has lectured all over the U.S. and abroad. He um, is also... Uh, the president of Tawheed Institute and the director of Camp Taha in Michigan, the first uh, Muslim-owned camp, to, Muslim-owned camp in America. In addition uh, to the uh, Wise Center and Islamic School, also in Michigan. Um, so Bismillah, we can play his video now. And then um, for all those who are watching on Facebook or YouTube Live. If you have any questions for any of the panelists, please feel free to write them um, in the comments. We will have a brief Q&A after, um, after this video, inshallah. And, yeah, thank you for listening. Bismillah. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala khayri khalqi wa nuri arshi afdalil anbiya'i wal mursaleen. حبيبنا وسيدنا وسندنا وشفيعنا ومولانا أبي القاسم محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين المأسومين المظلومين أما بعد فقد قال الله سبحانه وتعالى في كتاب المجيد وقوله الحق وهو أستغ الصادقين بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ومن آياته خلق السماوات والأرض واختلاف ألسنتكم وألوانكم إن في ذلك لآيات للعالمين صدق الله العلي العظيم All praise belongs to Allah and I thank Him for granting us this existence in making it diverse and rich with varieties of languages hues and colors of skins 
and of course two genders that are truly a blessing Allah in the Quran tells us يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ إِنَّا خَلَقْنَاكُمْ مِنْ ذَكَرٍ وَأُنْثَى وَجَعَلْنَاكُمْ شُعُوبًا وَقَبَائِلًا لِتَعَارَفُوا إِنَّ أَكْرَمَكُمْ عِنَّ اللَّهِ يَتْقَاكُمْ O mankind, indeed, we have made you into male and female nations and tribes, so you know each other. The most honorable to Allah is the one who is God-conscious. And we need to pay attention to the last part, which Allah says, the most honorable to Allah are the ones who are God-conscious. What is God-consciousness? Those who are morally upright, who consider God as their guiding light, who are submissive, and they promote good and forbid evil, and they practice equity, love for humanity, and they don't marginalize a group, nor do they work to find faults in each other, nor give each other bad names. We're discussing this matter today in a forum that requires much to be addressed, which is that black lives matter. And if we look at the human race, there has been an institutionalized evil that has taken place in the last few centuries, especially because we're contemporaries to it, where up to the 60s, black people in the United States were not even allowed to enter the shops and restaurants from the front. They were not allowed to sit in the front of the bus, and they were, of course, segregated into different economic strata by which not even to allow them to integrate with the societies. This attempt, which I believe is the core of evil, the core of evil in humanity, I believe, is at this level, has taken place because it has become institutionalized. And when something gets institutionalized, it's very difficult to point a finger at it because people start to feel that that's part of the system and you have to accept it. This is where the sickness comes. You and I should be impervious. In other words, we, you and I should not accept any form of evil institutions. The only institution that will bring about harmony and equity in the world is the institution per the Qur'an in the Sunnah of the Prophet and Al-Bayt. I believe that is the only institution that will topple these evil institutions. If we study these evil institutions, you will see that racism has three core components which are really bad. One is the individualized forms of racism, where people make incendiary comments against others and they sort of stereotype other people, or all black people are like this, all Asians are like that, all white people are like this. Those kinds of statements are bigoted, as we say, and they create problems because they foment negative relationships and they create uh, barriers for the communities to grow together. That's one. The second one is the marginalized group. The group that is marginalized, like the ones who are getting the brunt of racism, start now to support it. And one way of what we call tacit support is by practicing within themselves the feeling of helplessness, hopelessness. And they start to discriminate each other among themselves as to who is the closest to that supreme race. Unfortunately, that today is brought forth by the white supremacists. When we look at Black Lives Matters as a title, you know, why would somebody bring forth something that uh, says Black Lives Matter? It's like when we talk about women's rights. You know, you don't see any forum where we have men's rights. It's because one group has been abusing the other group. 
So you don't say white lives matters because it, it has the privilege. It has the system of privilege. So nobody would ever bring forth that. Now, to counter Black Lives Matter, suddenly they're starting to say that, you know, white lives matters. Nobody ever said that when black lives matters, it means that the other lives don't matter. What the black population is trying to say is that they've been marginalized long enough that it matters that it should be part and parcel and equal in its distribution with all the other ones who are receiving the benefits and the privileges, as we say. The irony is that those who are afraid of these kinds of movements are afraid that they will become extinct. And if you ever listen to supremacists who are trying to promote the notion of white supremacy, their number one fear is their own extinction, which is ironic given the fact that they have done this on such a large scale to try to maintain hegemony and control over all the other people and try to give themselves the privilege. And yet they are afraid of extinction. That's an irony. You would think that the other group that is not white and privileged should be the one that, that is afraid of extinction. So it's an irony that rather than saying that why don't we give equal privilege to all and let us all grow together and maintain diversity. No one is saying that a white person should become black or a black person should become white. But Allah has made all the human beings with various hues and cultures should be maintained. You see... People of nationalities should feel proud to be where they come from, but not at the cost of belittling other nations, not at the cost of belittling other races. So that's why, to me, the race card, when somebody's talking about the race, to me, it's, it's, it's rigged in the negative. See, I think we should be talking about human equity. We should be talking about human respect. We should be talking about how do we accept the variety of human beings. And those who are privileged feel threatened by this fact. So either there is just enough resources for them to live on it, and should they share it, you know, the whole world will starve, which is the furthest from the truth. Or they like to maintain their privilege, and they're so self-centered and selfish, and hence bigoted, that they cannot share it. This is the message that we need to understand, that Imam Hussein salam, the grandson of the Holy Prophet, fought against these kinds of institutional evils. Yazid ibn Muawiyah was trying to institutionalize debauchery. He was trying to institutionalize evil as the standard of life. Fevery, indecency, immorality, abject disregard for the divine, and to create what we call this Machiavellian world, that the end is not justified by the means, as long as it provides in the survival of the fittest mentality. And Imam Hussein alayhi salam goes to Karbala, and he states, "In kana din Muhammadin, lam yastaqim illa biqatli, fayasuyu fukhudini, that if the religion of the Holy Prophet, my grandfather, cannot be upright, except by my sacrifice, then I'm ready to be sacrificed. That's very powerful. That's how we eradicate institutionalized systems. But it requires a divine leader. It requires guidance. It requires careful modulation. For if Imam Hussein, when he was going to Karbala, if he was erratic, if he got into skirmishes, 
if he made foolish sentences or statements, or if he was unjust to anyone, in the process it would have belittled his movement. And this is how institutional evils try to stop by marginalizing and causing those who are fighting for justice to become unjust themselves. So as a final piece to this conversation, um, I advise us all to be vigilant and to be smart and to take the advice of the pundits. And there's no greater advice than the Quran. There's no greater advice as a role model than the Prophet. The Holy Prophet was colorblind. He practiced it. But we as Muslims should not be standing up for Black Lives Matters when we're committing the same kind of subtle evils within the system against the marginalized people like the dark-skinned people, which I think is a travesty, for I don't see any ugliness in any color, be it white-white or black-black or in between, the brown, the yellow, all of them. Human beings are a magnificent creation, and we must appreciate that, and we must honor it. And I know when I travel extensively and I see people of all skin colors and I always ask myself, where is the ugliness? I don't see the ugliness. I see nothing but beauty. Ugliness is in bad character. Ugliness is in selfishness. Ugliness is when a person is arrogant. That's ugly. But otherwise there's no ugliness. Merit with intelligence and love with dignity is a magnificent vision. And let us practice that. And I believe that Imam Hussain in Karbala had all age groups, both genders, and all cultures in, in the sense of the skin hues, from the black to the, of the black, like John Ben John, to the white of the white. All of them were present in Karbala. And I think that's the message, that let us all hold our hands together and fight this institutional evil. You have a knee being placed on George Floyd's neck, and he says, I cannot breathe. And he dies. And so many like him. There are thousands and thousands of George Floyds that haven't been mentioned, who've been lynched, hung on trees, you know, dismembered, thrown in the river, beheaded. And then now, in the 21st century, where police brutality even now been institutionalized, that a certain kind of people can be meted out with this injustice because we are bringing security and yet it continues to perpetuate itself. Let us fight this system not by being violent, not by being um, stereotypical against white people, but rather to surgically remove the evils of institutionalized racism and let's topple it with an institution of goodness an institution of justice, an institution of equity, the way Imam Hussein went to Karbala to show us how to establish it. You see the institution of Imam Hussein continues to grow. While people then, 1400 years ago, thought that Imam was killed and beheaded and his body was trampled and they thought he lost. But no, he didn't lose. His victory continues to grow every single day in the Umayyad, so-called transient, Victory continues to lose every single day, and inshallah that justice will prevail. For Allah has promised us in the Quran in Surah Al Qasas, "Wanuridu anna munna ala ladina stutifu fil ard, wanajalahum aima, wanajalahumul wadithid." May Allah give us the tawfiq that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala guarantees us in the Quran. He says, "I have this desire upon you, wanuridu, that you, the oppressed, 
shall become the inheritors and you shall and inshallah that promise of Allah will come around the corner very soon when the Imam Sahib al-Zaman salam reappears among us to establish this level of justice and these evils that are institutionalized where nobody can point a finger at them while everybody thinks that it's okay to marginalize a people inshallah will be eradicated and there will be justice and equity for all may Allah bless you thank you wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh You're on mute, Sister Sarah. Oh my goodness, I've been speaking for like a minute. Uh, uh, I'm sorry about that. Assalamu Um What I had said was Jazakallah khair um, to Hajj Hassanan, wherever he may be right now, and to all our speakers. I haven't received any questions just yet on the um, YouTube link, um, so I'm going to begin with some of my own. And again, if anyone watching has any questions, please feel free to put them um, either in the Facebook Live comments or in the YouTube comments, and inshallah, we'll get to all of them. So my first question is, um, and whoever uh, whoever feels um, most uh, passionately can feel free to answer, is given the sort of complex and layered nature of racism in the U.S., um, as, as many of you touched on, there are, um, there are individual aspects of racism. So things that are very easy to identify uh, in people, you know, who are overtly racist, white supremacists, etc. Um, and these, I, I believe, are less um, sort of prevalent and less um, glaring, at least in um, a lot of our communities. You know, it's much, I think, rarer these days for people to come out and just be um, overtly racist. Um, although it does certainly still exist. But then there's also um, various levels of institutional racism, whether that's in our police brutality system, in mass incarceration, the way black people are disproportionately uh, incarcerated and given harsher um, sentences for lesser crimes, but also in our healthcare system, in our food systems, the way um, black communities have proportion, disproportionately lower access to healthy, fresh food, the way um, insurance companies uh, are less likely to cover uh, medical uh, medical conditions that are more associated with black bodies. I mean, there are so many layers of the way our country um, marginalizes and oppresses uh, black and brown people. So what Given that, given how complicated the web um, of racism is, what what should be our approach? So, of course, you know, when um, when someone like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor um, is murdered, we take to the streets and we protest. But then what? What should our approach be? And should it be um, sort of multi-layered? Is there a legislative approach? Is there um, is there, of course, 
we should have an internal revolution and we should seek to refine ourselves and our own biases. But then what what are the other steps that we should be taking um, in the various levels uh, of working parts in our country, moving pieces in our country? Um, I think uh, I think it definitely um, that's a great question, and I'm sure that uh, Milana Bank and uh, Imam Dawood have a lot to add to this. Um, but I really want to emphasize that we really have to stop thinking that internal revolution is a small thing and that we've done it. We really have to stop thinking that us getting rid of uh, those diseases of the soul is a small thing. It is a lifelong journey, which most people may never accomplish, and they never they, they never even embark on it. Um, it's a huge thing. It When we think about the people who we're, we're, we admire, we adore, they um, are magnificent in the eyes of Allah. We're talking about the Imam Husseins and people like this. These were people who did what? They did internal revolution. When you are an internal revolution, you're a light. You automatically, just by virtue of your existence, because of your submission to Allah, because of what you practice, you are always going to be a light. Uh, you're going to be the beacon you know, that is going to radiate everything around you. And I want us to, I, there's definitely a lot of other aspects and things that, that are practical things that we can do, but I just would like to highlight that to your point that this is actually one of the most important, yet uh, I would say most overlooked aspect is fixing this. How many Muslims still have, um, uh, still benefit from the system of racism but why can't they break that because they have things within them that don't allow them things of greed things of you know diseases of the soul which don't allow them to break and shatter those uh those uh boundaries in order to make a difference in the world you know a team is only as good as its players you know and making those kind of changes in society means look if every muslim just think about it. If every Muslim was makes those kind of changes internally, uh, do you know how, how many Muslims there are in the world? <laughs> how many people like that is a huge, huge, huge um, change, you know? Um, and 72, obviously, you know, ultimately more than that. But those people are immortalized in history because of uh, that internal change that they had made. What they were not willing to be subservient to materialism, to um, you know, these other lowercase gods, you know, they were only willing to be subservient to Allah. That is so powerful. It is so powerful that if we learn that, we, are, we will be powerful beyond measure. Yeah, Jazakallah khair. Oh, please, uh, Imam Dawood, if you would. Uh... I want to touch on something, uh, and, and may Allah reward uh, Sheikh Hussein. I want to touch on something again that uh, Mawlana Abed said, Hafizullah, is that um, racism cannot be legislated away. 
it can't be legislated away nor adjudicated away because we're talking about amrad al We're talking about diseases of the heart. And there are many different policies uh, and laws that are being put forth, and, um, and they sound good on paper. But if the issue of anti-black racism could have been solved by laws and court rulings, it had been solved with Brown versus the Board of Education and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Immigration Act of 1965 and the, and the Fair Housing Act and anti-lynching laws and police commissions and affirmative action. And none of those policies, um, um, actually mass incarceration is worse now in America for black people than it was at the time of the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? I mean, there, there's a number of things. Economic marginalization of black people is worse now than it was 50 years ago. So laws simply can't change it. But besides the internal revolution that Sheikh Hussein mentioned, jihad uh, al if we want to use that language, I think the I think the other thing that we need to investigate as Muslims is that racism cannot be decoupled from capitalism. Racism and capitalism are twin sisters in America. So then we have to investigate, we as Muslims, how are we uh, perhaps profiting through capitalism that is further marginalizing or keeping people oppressed? For instance, we Muslims... We don't constitute large enough populations to change a lot of votes regarding uh, who gets elected into national office, right? But when we look at black communities, we see that Muslims um, are overrepresented in people who own the gas stations that sell lottery, that sell alcohol, that, 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 that um, including in, in my area, Metro Detroit. Uh, in other areas where Muslims are the primary people who own the liquor stores. We go to Southside Chicago. I was in Chicago last weekend. Um, you'll see that, um, and if you go into the stores, they'll even have Ayatul Kursi or El Fatiha behind the cash register where they're selling lottery, where they're selling 40 ounces, where they're selling pornography. And Na'udhu Billah, I went into a, a gas station a few years ago in the east side of Detroit, and the Yemeni brother even was selling pig feet, pickle pig feet next to the register, right? So it's like, like how are we as Muslims, and, it, and, and, and this is from the, 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 from the Shia and the Sunnah, and, and, and Ahlul Sunnah, both groups, are, are we willing to divest from our business interests where we are capitalizing off of institutional racism in America, right? I think that's a, that, that's a big question that we have to ask ourselves uh, and, and be really honest uh, about it because unfortunately uh, we're talking about the inward revolution. Um, there are families and even institutions in the Muslim community who are Islamic, who are profiting uh, off of the oppression of black people. Yeah, that's, Jazakallah khair, Imam Dawood. That's definitely, I think, um, I think I agree with you that you can't talk about racism without talking about capitalism and you can't talk about um, 
any of this without talking about the foundations of this country, as Maulana Beg was uh, speaking about uh, earlier. I actually have a question for Maulana Beg, given uh, that you mentioned sort of the evil roots of this country. And um, multiple of you now have mentioned how we can't legislate racism away. We can't, um, you know, we can't put a law, um, put any law in place that's going to eradicate these problems. Um, of course, laws can help, but if the foundation, if the root structure of what we're dealing with is at its core rotten, then what? What does that mean for our approach to the system? And I was wondering if Maudana Beg, if you have any um, any thoughts about that, like what our how we should conceive of ourselves as Muslims who have immigrated. Some of us have immigrated to this country. Some of us were born and raised here and have been here for generations. But what is our role as Muslims in a place that has such rotten, evil uh, roots um, in in all of its legislation? Well, uh, first of all, I think, you know, one of the things that um, it needs to make, be made clear in regards to immigrants and people who came here, a majority of them, uh, the vast majority of people who have moved here are impressed and admire the system, you know, and when you admire the system, then you can't oppose it. It would be going against your own self. You know, uh, I see that people moved here and, and they they are very honored to have a status here. It's like the greatest thing they achieved in this life. And I'm not talking about everyone, but you know, like when you look at your own relatives and, and family and people who moved here and, and the attitude that they have to the place over here, they, yes, will say that, yeah, this could improve that, but in, inwardly, they think that this is the best system in the world. This is the best system in the world. And when you have that attitude or that viewpoint, then it's very difficult to see wrongs that are happening inside it or even try to come that far as to now oppose it. It's not something that would happen. It's, uh, and... That's why uh, I just want to talk about um, what we should have done or what should have happened with us. You know, we should have come here like the prophet came to Arabia. He was a refuge, a, a place where everyone who was victimized and oppressed can, can come to and be a part, and could belong somewhere, as an equal. And when we opened our centers, and when we opened our places of worship, and, and we opened the doors for people, really, we did not want the others to come in. And when they did come in, we got scared as to why are these people coming in. And and if you look at it, it's like this, right? In any movement, if someone is going to become a Muslim, and this is a problem that we had here, you can say this is a systemic problem in our centers. 
a systemic problem that we had in our center was that, you know, people wanted uh, others to become Muslims who are rich, who can give donations, and who can be protective in the masjid. They did not have room for someone who is poor, someone who didn't have a job, or someone who came with baggage. Because we were, we are not ready or prepared to deal with them or to be inclusive of them in our centers. And this is the problem that we had. Yes, if you had one person who becomes a Muslim, everyone likes it because he becomes like a mascot, you know, for everyone. Uh, you know, like, this is a random, you know, <laughs> I don't know, black Muslim friend that we have. You know, but in my own experience, I saw this, that when, when we had more people becoming Muslim, for example, from the black community, and they are, there's a thirst for them to have a belonging, you know, uh, that, that, you know what, because the society here has deprived them, uh, so they are ready to be a part of something that's real, and, and Islam is supposed to be real. And when they came to the centers and they said La ilaha illallah and they said that yes, this is where I belong. And then what happened was that the people got afraid. They didn't want them here. They would approach me as the resident alim of these places and say, Mahona, you know what I mean? What's going on here? You know, we have all these people, you know, we feel unsafe here. I said, brother, you feel unsafe. You should be the one providing safety for these people who are coming in. They came to find refuge. But so we ourselves are so back away, way back to what we should be. And that's the unfortunate part right now. So there's a lot of cleansing that we have to do, a lot of dirty laundry that we have. Just looking after the people who are Muslims and believers right now. In our own places of worship. And one of the good things that is happening uh, with the Black Lives Movement, I've seen this, is that the youngsters, the kids, are becoming intolerant to the racism that is um, prevalent amongst our people. The way that we talk in different languages, you know, and the way that we refer to black people, it is, you know, a very horrible way that all, whether it's in Urdu, Farsi, Arabic, you know, the way that you refer to black people, just, you know, talking about them. Now those kids who are looking at that and saying, you can't say that, it's wrong. And that's a good thing. You know, uh, that's a good thing. But it's really unfortunate that it had to come through the Black Lives Movement instead of within the teachings of Islam and from the uh, verses of the Quran and Hadith of the Prophet and the Imams. Instead of that, it came from, you know, harsh reality outside. So this is something that we need to look at and see that what are the all the other lessons that we are not practicing from Islam, that we have to learn from others. So, you know, let's look into that and do some uh, introspective um, study.
Shazakallah khair for that. Um, yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of work to do within the Muslim community, within uh, both on the individual level and on the community level. Um, the standards we set um, in our masajid and just amongst ourselves. Um, and as all of you have been saying, you know, if if all of us take undertake the project of reforming ourselves and our own intentions and approaching what we do, whether we're in any given field, uh, you know, whether we're part of enacting legislation or whether we're healthcare workers or whether we're um, educators, if if we all undertake that project of reforming ourselves and, and move forward with that and educating the people around us, then that in itself um, is what's going to make the change. I have one question from the YouTube, um, which I will ask and then invite you all to make um, your closing remarks because we are approaching the two hour mark, uh, which I don't think we uh, were originally planning on doing. But someone on the YouTube has asked, how does this revolution start? Um, is it purely individual? Is it at a community level? Should our leaders be demanding change? And I think that's a good um, sort of place to end. You know, on the one hand, um, I was saying earlier and, and echoing off of you that, oh, we need to be okay with knowing that we're not going to see the end result. But then at the same time, I feel as though I keep asking, uh, how, are, how are we going to get to the end result? How are we going to make things better? Um, and maybe the answer is as simple as um, just trying to reform the little part of the world that's around us. But maybe you all can um, try to answer this question, inshallah, and then we can um, leave it at that. Um, whoever wants to begin, I think Imam uh, Dawood, you unmuted yourself. Yeah. Um, there's a saying in, uh, in Senegal, in West Africa, that the, uh, the Muslims have that says that even the sharpest knife cannot cut its own handle. Even the sharpest knife cannot cut its own handle, right? So when we read uh, the Quran and Surah Al-Kaf, we see that a, uh, a prophet, Nabi Musa, السلام, had a, a spiritual guide, had a murshid, and we know him as Al-Khidr, right? So if we're talking about, and of course, Musa, السلام, and Ma'asum, none of us are from the Ma'asumin, right? Um, but there's a lesson in this that a prophet of Allah had a spiritual mentor. He had a spiritual guide or a spiritual teacher. So it is, I believe, in this self in this process of, of self-transformation, the internal revolution, that we find ourselves a a, a murabbi. And maybe it's difficult right now during COVID-19, but this is very true in the, uh, in the Islamic tradition in West Africa, that you find yourself someone, uh, if they're not a, a scholar uh, of, of, of your same gender, someone who has been working on their spiritual refinement, find someone who's an elder, who is upright, who, uh, who can help you in your, in your saluk or in your spiritual warfare or spiritual journey, and who can tell you the way it is, Right. Uh, and, and someone also you can do uh, who you can do uh, uh, khidma for because part of the problem that underlines uh, our lack of spiritual development 
is the spiritual disease of kibber or the kibber of arrogance. This is the most deadly of the spiritual diseases that we have. And part of us breaking this arrogance that we can move for self-transformation is part of it is, is, have, is doing khidmah or having the humility of doing service for someone, right? And, um, and I myself, I, I have a, uh, I have a morabi. Uh, and uh, there's a saying that every sheikh has a sheikh, right? So um, we need to uh, seek out those upright people and to try to have a, a check-in that we can work to humble ourselves and that, uh, as the hadith is, mu'min uh, mu'min, that the believer is the believer, uh, the believer is the mirror of the other believer, and um, we can't see ourselves fully like how, other people can see us, and we need people to help us uh, in our spiritual wayfaring. Uh, Sansom, um, I really appreciate that point. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm, uh, I want to reiterate that a little bit. Uh, I also have Morabi, I, you know, and spiritual guidance. And I think that, you know, when trying to um, do that internal revolution, which impacts communal um, change, uh, sometimes it's kind of like walking into the gym with a million different types of uh, equipment and just thinking, uh, I don't know what to do, you know. Maybe I'll run, maybe I'll do a little of this, maybe I'll do it for this long and just trying different things versus a trainer coming and saying, Hey, you know what? Exactly what you need to do is you need to do ten minutes of this, three reps of that, and really kind of pinpoint which for each person is different, what's gonna help them to develop. So when we're at our best, then we're going to be, you know, um we're going to be an asset and to the community and really be able to help and push those changes. Um, there, there's a series that I have been working on for some for some years uh, about community building. And it's a set of workshops, which um, I, I would encourage anyone who's interested to, the idea is it's based off of a lot of research from not myself, but a lot of Olamana scholars where basically it's all of the hadith that have to do with how do you build community in a non-Muslim land, you know, and this is kind of the predicament that we find ourselves in, but it's not something that has not happened before. And so what are, what are the roles? What do we need to focus on? How do we need to build? And there's some, you know, uh, general themes and then obviously then some practical aspects of what that might look like. And I would encourage anyone to, you know, when, whenever, you know, the next uh, workshop that I have on community building is um, to participate in that, I think that will help to answer some of these questions about um, some of the practical, you know, next steps of what does this look like and what does it look like for a community. But that has to be uh, on our minds that we are seekers, you know, and we have to be seeking uh, knowledge. And actually, there's a hadith that says the, the, I mean, there's a, a idea rather that the nature of knowledge is that it has to be sought right and so it could be you know 
the greatest, you know, educators, teachers, ulama, scholars, but that doesn't just boom, get to the next person, except for the one who seeks it. That's why we have those hadith, seek knowledge from the cradle to the grave, seek knowledge even unto China, because the nature of attaining that, what to do next, is going to be through seeking, right? It's going to be through consistently seeking, and uh, those murabbis and guides will help to make that come to fruition, inshallah. First of all, I would really like to thank the organizers for uh, putting this together and and uh, in these sort of settings and, and these sort of uh, programs, uh, they reach out to people who actually uh, need to learn and, and to create an awareness amongst them. And I really would like to thank uh, Imam Dawood and, and Sheikh Hussain Maki, you know, their the points and, and the things that they have said, you know, truly, if you can just pay attention to that, it will really be helpful for a lot of people, you know. Um, I just want to say just one thing, right? Just pay attention to why George Floyd has become such a big thing. George Floyd is just another person who was killed like many others. Why did George Floyd become the symbol of this movement? I just want us to think about that, you know, and, and you'll realize it's not because of George Floyd or the way he was killed, you know. I mean, many people have been killed and, and, and they have been uh, treated worse. It's not about that. But the main thing that changed was the fact that the quarantine and the pandemic and us staying in our homes and, and, and not having anything to do. I mean, literally, you know, everyone has gone through everything that they can ever watch on the Internet, YouTube or Netflix. And after that, when you have nothing else to do, what can you do but start thinking? People are thinking now. They are using their minds. It's the same reason why a lot of people in the prison accept Islam. Because outside of the prison, you can't think. When you go to the prison, you have time. And when you have time, you can start thinking. And actually reflecting. You have time to hear other people and, and what they are saying. You have time. In fact, that's all you have in prison. Because you're serving time. Outside is the same thing for us. We are so engrossed in life here that we don't have time to think. And the inner revolution that we are talking about, it starts inside of us through thinking. It is, Allah says, you know, uh, this, this idea of thinking, you know, that do they not think? This thinking is where it starts. And then when you go along, you know, in the middle you'll need your murabbi, your murshid. And then at the end, you don't even have a murabbi and murshid. You're on your own. At the end. It's only in the middle you need that. But at the beginning, for us to get that spark going, it needs to start from us thinking. If 
we can just take time. Like, for example, we devote time for everything. How much time do we devote for eating? How much time do we devote for sleeping? How much time do we devote for prayer? When we make our prayer, how much time do we have for that? How much time do we have for think? Set aside a time, a day, specific time where you think. This is my thinking time, my meditation time. I, I'm not praying at this time. I'm not doing dua at this time. I'm just thinking. You see, just try to get a time. Because if Allah says that thinking is ibadat, then it needs time. I mean, it's not like, for example, I'm eating and exercising at the same time. You know, neither is the exercise useful, neither is the eating useful. You, you gotta serve time. And so, if people can right now truly start to think and, and to see, you know, about Imam Hussain, why did he do the things that he has to do? Just that much. Think about it a little bit. And then it might hit you hard. It might hit you hard. And it does. So let's take that. And I think, you know, that is where everyone needs to start. Thank you very much. May Allah bless you all. Jazakallah khair, uh, Imam Dawood Walid, Sheikh Hussein Mecca, and Maulana Beg. Thank you for all your remarks. And I think, um, this was just an excellent reminder that when things seem as though um, they're really hopeless and we, we think that there's so much injustice and oppression in the world and we want to point fingers and we want to, uh, you know, place the blame outside of ourselves, that the first thing that we should be doing is looking inward and looking at the ways that we ourselves are complicit in injustice, that we are complicit in um, in the oppression and marginalization of others, and that any sort of change really needs to begin with us taking a good look at our own souls and at our own actions. Um, so with that, I know we've gone far over time, and I thank everyone um, for participating and listening, and I thank especially our speakers, um, our esteemed speakers, um, for your